I got so focused on this one quality issue, I let the company run out of cash. In fact, that issue of running out of cash, of potentially bankrupting a business, ended up being a bigger problem to have to sort out than the original quality issue was to start with. Choose not to live in a world of filters. Realize your mistakes. Set the foundation for your success. Get some wins. Knucklehead Podcast. Hey, what's going on, y'all? I'm excited to tell you a little bit about Cordell Bennington. And we don't always take the time to give a proper bio for the folks that we have on the podcast. And honestly, with the caliber of individual that we had, and we have a bunch of high caliber folks that are coming on to Knucklehead quite a bit. And I wanted to set the background a little bit more in terms of what Cordell's been able to do, his experience serving the Department of Defense, law enforcement, aerospace customers, as a CEO for a manufacturing organization, he comes from a background in the private sector of successfully parlaying his experience to have two private equity-backed organizations be acquired. And he'll talk a little bit more about that experience whenever we get into the podcast here. But anyway, graduate of California at Berkeley with a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science, holds a master's degree in business from Harvard Business School. He's completed the Developing a Leading Edge Operations Strategy Executive Program at MIT Sloan School of Business. Just honestly, a renaissance man of all sorts, living in Asia, Central America, Russia, just all over the place. I'm excited about the opportunity that we had to chat with him today. So with that, I will not delay and let's roll. Let's chat with Cordell Bennington. Buckle up. This is going to be a good one. All right. Hey, welcome to another edition of Knucklehead Podcast. We got with you today, the Knucklehead. But as we introduce each one of these episodes, I'm going to tell you, I've been very excited about guests that we've had before. Uh, I'm very excited, very, very excited about having Cordell Benningson here with you today for a number of reasons. Let's rewind the clock back just a little bit. So 2018, 2019, we had kicked off recording podcasts. We had had a few guests coming on to the show, uh, coming out of a really, quite frankly, it was just a, it was an awesome event at uh, the Echelon Front Muster 003 in Austin, Texas. I think it was at the tail end of 2017. And I had established some some good contacts there. Sometimes you keep in touch with people and sometimes you don't. And what's great about that particular event is it was one of my first experiences with business folks who also came from the military. And it was a formalized kind of one to two degree separation from what we were doing professionally. And quite frankly, it was just a really nice way to establish some good business relationships with people. And I, I tell you what, since that time, we've had Mike Sorelli come on the show. We've had JP Pete come on the show. We've had Dave Burke come on the show. We've even had some people that we met there who have gone on and started other entities, but everything kind of points back back to that event being a very influential networking opportunity for us as, a, as an agency. So I'm excited that uh, one of the folks that we got a chance to meet there, actually, we had met maybe once or twice before that, Cordell, if I remember correctly, but Cordell that's right. went to school and, and flew with, with Dave, but I am going to butcher the context there. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but we got Cordell Benningson on the show who we date back a few years, and I'm just, I'm excited for his background for our audience here. So you flew some fantastic aircrafts. I don't want to mischaracterize your background when it comes to that. So please correct me and welcome to the show, by the way. Well, thanks for having me, Stephen. Those are uh, uh, those are some impressive uh, folks that you listed off there. Uh, Dave, JP, uh, the team at Echelon Front. Those are uh, those are people that are, are influential and inspiring to me uh, as well. So uh, quite a circle of folks that you've been uh, talking to and working with. 
Well, Yin Young, who's there, I appreciate that. But to be honest with you, those are circles that you that you run in all the time, and you you kind of come from the same pedigree, so to speak, as Dave. I appreciate you you casting some credit over there, but the reality is is. I was just teasing you a little bit beforehand. And for those of you who are listening, Cordell's like the type of guy that you, you want to be when you grow up. It's unbelievable when you read the experiences that he has. You would think that it would be perfectly aligned and everything to be super intentional. And obviously, I don't want to mischaracterize his background, but the context of today's show is you don't have to do everything perfectly in order for there to be a favorable outcome. The whole context of Knucklehead is you're going to screw up. It's not a matter of if you will. And when you do, how do you respond to it? And then how do you put some safeguards in place to prevent you from making those same mistakes again? And what we strive to do here is bring you not just people who've read a book or people who've experienced maybe a success or two, but people who have a track record of consistently overcoming, in some cases, insurmountable odds or difficult sets of circumstances to create some some very favorable outcomes, not just for themselves, but their family going forward. So today's guest is precisely that. One, just because I know he still lives down in Austin, so he has a lot of things he has to overcome down there with bikers on the road. Uh, you know, driving down 360. I mean, my t- I'll tell you what, if you're down there in Austin, you don't get points for the bikers down there, but they make it dicey. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. So Cordell, Let's set some context here for, for folks. You, you spent some time. Did you grow up uh, up in Maine? I, I know you have a, some some places up up near on the East Coast, but did you grow up there? Where, where did you grow up? Yeah, uh, great question. I grew up uh, on the East Coast. I actually grew up, uh, I was born in Boston. Uh, all okay. my family's still up there uh, in New England. Um, I've got family in Maine, family in Vermont. But this life path that sort of didn't follow or hasn't followed a straight trajectory I can trace it all the way back to starting in Boston. I was born there, uh, but at a very early age, moved actually to England. Um, My dad worked for a European firm and, you know, they move people around countries the way uh, American companies move people around states sometimes. So uh, we moved uh, when I was really young, we moved to the UK uh, and I learned to speak uh, English with a British accent. And we were there for about two years and then we moved to Sweden. And I was still young enough that you know, picked up language really quickly. Uh, so I was a little American kid uh, with a British accent, speaking fluent Swedish in Sweden. And then we moved back to Boston. And I can tell you that mix on the playground in Boston in elementary school doesn't serve you very well. So I pretty quickly learned to lose the accent and lose the Swedish. I don't speak a word of it anymore. Purge that a lot from your memory, it sounds like. So you got it. You got it. Exactly. I always wonder if maybe it's still in there somewhere. But even early on, this sort of uh, a zigzag kind of a kind of a path um, I did. So, so you know, starting in Boston, then went out to uh, the West Coast. Uh, I went to Berkeley uh, for my undergrad. What did you study whenever you were there? I was a political science major. Uh, and actually, at the time, uh, there was a lot going on in the world. Uh, the, the wall had come down in, in Germany. Glasnost and Perestroika were, you know, transforming what was then still the Soviet Union. Uh, so I studied, I studied Soviet foreign policy at the time, which, you know, today is maybe like being a history major. You can question how relevant it was. But at the time, it was the most interesting thing going on in the world. Uh, and so it was fascinating. You could make the argument now, and I appreciate that background. 
for those of you who are listening, some context here, I wanted to to talk about the upbringing for a couple of reasons. One in particular is I just made reference at the beginning of the show to folks that, you know, come from uh, certain circles, uh, military pedigree, now professional development and the consulting side. And so there's a paradigm associated with, with business. There's a paradigm associated with capitalism. There's a paradigm associated with, you know, that type of upbringing that I think is, it's interesting to view that experience. And the fact that you grew up in some of the places that you did, growing up with different experiences from other countries. I don't talk to a lot of people who grew up in other countries, let alone three of them before they were, you know, went to high school. So that's, that's a pretty incredible upbringing. Do you feel like some of your exposure to those different cultures maybe contributed to your interest in, you know, the institutions of, of the military and, and how these kind of systems of power work? Or were you just, was that just kind of a byproduct of some of the time that you spent at Berkeley? Yeah, you know, it unquestionably, uh, it had an impact on my view of the world uh, and my view of what I wanted to do in the world. Frankly, when I was younger, the military for me, I wanted to fly. I wanted to fly jets. Uh, when I was a kid, the wallpaper in my room was just pictures of jets that I cut out of magazines. And so that was sort of a thing that was uh, on its own. But the But the upbringing definitely gave me a perspective of the world that there's a lot out there. There's a lot you can go do and it's attainable, right? It's not a big, scary place. It's not something for other people to go do. You can, you can get to it. Uh, so, you know, even at the time wanting to go from uh, New England out to the West Coast to go to, go to college, um, just having a view of the world that, hey, that could be attainable. Go after it. Give it a shot. See what happens. So that, that definitely had an impact. Adventurousness kind of carries with it this this risk factor. Do you feel as if you've always viewed risk as just a calculation, or do you? I mean, have you have you always kind of had confidence in the fact that you can overcome whatever obstacles or adventurousness that there exists that's out there? Yeah, you know, I've always had, I think, a pretty high risk tolerance, willing to go do things that, on the surface, have a perceived level of risk that actually they may not be as risky as they look. To the outside, um, they may take preparation, they may take study, they you know, whatever it is, but also just a willingness to take that on. Now that's led to some pretty good knucklehead moments too, right? Where I took something on and it turned out, oh, I didn't realize that that risk might actually happen, or I didn't realize that risk was was in the cards. But that hasn't been something that's turned me off. That's good. Well, I, I love. I appreciate that disclaimer, and quite frankly, the transition over to the context of the show. The context of the show is, listen, you're not going to do this thing perfect. I mean, there's there's not there's been multiple graduates from UC Berkeley who've gone on to uh, the military. There's been folks who've gone to uh, to Harvard to get their MBA to start that start have started businesses. Your path is is unique because it's it's your story, and so what's interesting about what you just said in terms of giving you an opportunity to have some knucklehead moments. Can you think of one where you where you didn't think that you were going to recover from or, or potentially maybe left an impression on you that shaped the way, kind of helped mold the perspective for, for risk-taking going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, in thinking ahead about our conversation today, it was the challenge wasn't in coming up with one. The challenge was in coming <laughs> up with which one. Uh, sure. Because as I think sure. about it, uh, the learning throughout my career and throughout my life, it's a it's a series of mistakes and failures. I mean, you learn from things that go well, without a doubt. But man, you learn a lot from the things that don't go right. Um, and I wasn't I haven't always been good at that. Uh, when I was younger, uh, although I had a high risk tolerance, 
uh, I actually didn't see myself as somebody who failed. I, I defined myself as a winner. Uh, and there was some positives to that. It drove a real intensity. It drove a lot of success. I, you know, I, I was really, uh, really fortunate. But we're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to have failures. And the mindset that I had when I was younger actually made those things harder when they eventually happened. The military, the Marine Corps started to do a really good job starting to teach me about the real value of learning from our mistakes. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I love what you're doing at, at Knucklehead. This is instilled to us in the military, right? We don't go, we don't go out on a flight or a mission or any kind of an event without doing a debrief afterwards. And those debriefs are where we talk about the things that went right, but even more importantly, the things that went wrong, because that's how we're going to learn. And that just becomes part of the culture in the military. And it's not as much a part of the culture in the civilian world or or in the business world. Uh, so I think it's fantastic what you're doing. So as I was thinking about our conversation here today, like I said, it was really a question of, of not, geez, is there one? It was a question of which ones are the most interesting to talk about? And, uh, you know, there's one that just absolutely comes to mind for me. It's a top of top of the list. Uh, and one of the companies I was running uh, was a manufacturing company. And we ran into a quality issue, a pretty significant quality issue. And uh, listen, it happens. I'd love to believe that you know, you can run a manufacturing operation and never have any quality issues. Uh, that's not the reality of the world. Things things happen. Uh, it's part of operations. It's why we need good people working in in manufacturing. And so it, it came up and it was a pretty big deal. Uh, and it required a significant amount of my attention, a significant amount of our senior leadership team's attention. And, and rightfully so. This was important. But I did two things. Uh, wrong in this issue. Because it was a big deal, I let my emotions come in on it. Uh, and I let my emotions really uh, become a factor in my decision making. And I re I over-focused on this one issue. Uh, in military aviation, we would call it target fixation. It's where you know, you're losing sight of everything else that's going on in the airplane. You're even losing sight of, of maybe how close you are to the ground. You're in a bombing run and you're just fixated on the target. And in aviation, that can be really dangerous. You can, you can fly an airplane right into the ground. Uh, well, I kind of did that. Uh, in this situation, I got so focused on this one quality issue, I let the company run out of cash. In fact, that issue of running out of cash, of potentially bankrupting a business, ended up being a bigger problem to have to sort out than the original quality issue was to start with. Uh, it took a long time to work ourselves out of that. Uh, it took a real team effort uh, to make it happen. But there was some really, really powerful lessons learned in that. One is just the you know, really emphasizing the importance of you're in a leadership role. It doesn't matter how big the issue is. You have got to be able to keep your emotions in check. You've got to be able to step back from the situation and maintain some perspective on what's going on because you've got other other things you have to be thinking about. Uh, and then at a more tactical level, had I had cash management processes, cash management practices in place in the business before this had happened, 
we never would have gotten to that point. We would have had we would have had systems to had make sure that it didn't happen. We would have had you know alerts to tell us, hey, you're getting you're getting a little dangerously low here. Uh, you need to shift your attention over to what it is. So that today is a much more uh, deliberate and prioritized focus for me when I'm running a business is absolutely making sure that we've got those kinds of practices and processes in place. So, because I never want to let that, I'm ne- I, I shouldn't say want to, I will never let that particular mistake sneak up on me again, right? I absolutely learned from that one. I've got a, that's a, that's an incredible story for, for those of you who are listening and just, if you could go with me there for a, for a second as a listener, think about the, the gut reaction and the the emotions, the reference that you used is letting your emotions get the best of you. You can imagine how sitting in a room, how that must feel looking at your leadership in the eyes, making the, the essentially that the change is necessary in order to address the quality control issue or the manufacturing scenario that you just described. Can you remember essentially looking at your at your leadership and, and having those conversations with them as this became a much it became more apparent to you that the cash management issue was a larger issue than the quality control? How did you change the way you communicated those leadership challenges now that you you're, you've involved some of the executive folks? Yeah, great question. You know, first off was having to make sure that the whole leadership under, understood what the top priority issue was we were dealing with. We had all been focused on this quality issue uh, for a long period of time. And, and so everybody had this sort of target fixation on that idea. And I had to shift everyone's attention over to this other issue. So I had to make sure that my communication was clear and concise about what was going on. Uh, I, you can't expect people to make good decisions if they don't have the information. Right, so I've got to share this information with everybody and I've got to put it into a context that makes sure we've got everybody aligned. Also have to realize, or I had to realize, that this information has the potential of being scary. Right, you're, you're in a leadership position in a business and uh, your boss just told you that Hey, you're running out of cash, right? That that can be a scary place to be in. So part of the communication has to be not only where are we at and what's the issue, but making sure that people understand, hey, there's a vision and there's a strategy for how we're going to manage through this. Is it going to be easy? No. But do we have a plan for doing it? Absolutely. And what's it going to look like on the other side of that when we get through this? And you know, wh- how are we going to recover from it and why are we going to be better because of it? Sharing all of that up front uh, to make sure that we had alignment, not only on tactically dealing with the issue, but emotionally and psychologically dealing with it the right way so that we didn't end up fixated, you know, sort of a target fixation on that new issue. And then something else is going to go wrong over on the over on the side. So we had to, you know, we had to be learning from it and setting that vision for the future. Absolutely. It, it's it's fascinating to hear the dynamics of how that decision was made and quite frankly, how the resolution was materialized. It sounds like it was a very valuable lesson. We, Cordell, we've had um, a gentleman on the on the podcast before. His name's Yan Young. He he runs a um, kind of a capital management organization out there in Austin and you know, the context of how we met was through 
uh, a startup. He had started a, a, a sushi, fast casual sushi business. He was actually on Shark Tank. He, he's come on the show before. He's a fantastic individual. It's fascinating hearing him talk about the differences between startups and mature organizations. And, and, and so much with today's worker, there are systems and processes that mature organizations may have that may not necessarily make sense because they lack the context as to why. And that's what kept on coming to in my mind, as you're going through your story, as the organization grew, I mean, was there a clear difference in terms of how you communicated some of the, the business processes and strategies that, and, and why they were there for, for your new employees and as your, you know, as your company continued to grow? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, one of these, I, we talked at the very beginning about uh, how my, my career doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, as you as you look at it, it's not a it's not a path that I ever would have mapped out from the beginning. Uh, and one of those things that doesn't make sense is my career is really counter flow to what most people do. Uh, each company that I've gone to, each organization that I've been with has been smaller than the last. Uh, most people's careers are actually trying to work in the other direction. The, the thing that I found so fun about going from this larger to smaller. I mean, starting out with, you know, huge organizations like you know, the Marine Corps, BAE Systems and Dell, down to, you know, these very small local manufacturing companies is getting to bring the lessons learned, the best practices from something larger to something smaller. I mean, that's part of the fun is getting to, to be in that role of not only player coach, which we hear people talk a lot about, uh, but really player, coach, teacher. Uh, because as you go into smaller, you know, as I've moved into smaller and smaller companies, um, there are there are concepts and practices that uh, people just haven't had the chance to be exposed to. It's not that they're not capable of it. It's not that they're not smart enough for it. Absolutely. I mean, amazing people. They just, some of these, they just, folks haven't been in a position to be able to be exposed to them. And so it's, it's a lot of fun to bring those things from larger organizations to smaller. But I definitely had to learn uh, it's not enough to just say, hey, I want you to go implement lean manufacturing practices. Hey, I want you to go cut costs. I want you to grow, go grow the top line. We actually have to, to talk about, OK, what does that what does that really mean? We actually have to teach how to do that. And we have to teach it down through the organization. Absolutely. What comes to mind is a phrase going to cater to the lowest common denominator, um, you know, in terms of how you're, at least from a communication standpoint. And, you know, the Marine Corps, as an enlisted guy myself, there's raw material. When I say raw material, I'm talking about 18, 19 year olds who are very, very young, but behind the years. And if you look at it like a team, you know, like a, um, a football team, for instance, you've got first string, second string, third string, you've got different people and trying to, you know, trying to, to put a first team responsibility on somebody who's not necessarily experienced, you can, you can do a lot of damage uh, in some cases by, by overwhelming them. So it's, it's interesting to hear you describe, you know, taking what's worked for a much larger organization and putting it down at a smaller organization and, and having the success that you've had, which is, which is incredible. Uh, a buddy of mine, Mike Stedman, he's uh, he's out in New Jersey. He talks about startup incubators, but in the context of working with teenagers at a boxing gym to helping them understand business, it's it's you don't can't talk you can't call it a startup incubator there. You have to just call it a, a discussion about yeah hey, we're gonna have a chat about 
tactics and boxing boxing tactics when really it's a business class. I mean, just knowing your audience and and uh, and catering to the lowest common denominator and communicating in a, a really simple way, which is yeah fascinating. So to bring this back to being a pilot, what was it about flying then? Because I'm when you say your career was it almost didn't make sense. Quite frankly, flying almost doesn't even make sense. But the way pilots think, y'all are thinking in three dimensions constantly. It seems like you're always doing calculations. So what what was it about flying that attracted you? It was the excitement of it. I mean, I wish there were, I wish I could say there was some higher thought process to it. I wanted to fly jets. I wanted to fly jets. I wanted to go fast. I wanted to do I wanted to do something that seemed uh, exciting that had some danger to it. I will admit to, you know, being a kid of, of, you know, 1980s movies. I loved Top Gun. Any jet pilot my age who tells you they weren't influenced by that movie is just not telling you the truth. I think I had some influence from my life, from my family life too. Uh, I actually do come from a long line of uh, military service. My dad was a naval officer. His brother uh, was a Navy pilot. Uh, my grandfather was a World War II P-38 pilot. Uh, and um, so there's a, you know, there's a lot of tradition in there. Sure. And, and I didn't, you know, later on, uh, you know, my wife's family has a lot of military tradition as well. Um, her dad was a naval officer. Uh, her grandfather was also uh, a Navy pilot in World War II. Uh, and so I, I take a lot of, uh, I take a lot of pride in being part of that family heritage of service today. Sure. Yeah. But at the time as a kid, that wasn't part of the thought process. I just wanted to fly jets. What was the attraction of the Marine Corps? Uh, first of all, that's incredible. The, the pedigree in terms of uh, military experience and uh, tradition in the family. Uh, take a lot of pride in that because of, I mean, that's your family. That's it's a very important to lean into that, in my opinion, uh, especially in today's culture where some cases it's not as celebrated. Um, I'm, I don't want to say not celebrated. It's not as appreciated in the same way. There's a lot of uh, attacks in terms of uh, the, some of the foundations that have come up recently, uh, at least over, or in my generation. There seems to be a, a hyper focus in some cases on what's wrong with things as opposed to uh, celebrating what's good about it. Yeah, I do think that I think in general, most in the country really do uh, appreciate those who serve, which I think is fantastic. Uh, I think more and more people are disconnected from it. Uh, you know, there's a smaller and smaller percentage of people who serve, smaller number of uh, family members, things along those lines that do. Um, but generally speaking, I think we do still have a nation that that does recognize and appreciate it. And I, I think that's uh, I think that's fantastic. Your question about the Marine Corps. I remember it vividly uh, because I didn't have exposure to the Marine Corps growing up. Uh, you know, I had a little bit of exposure to the Navy through my family or to the friendships and the stories about the Navy, rather. But I, I started out in uh, Naval ROTC my freshman year at Berkeley. I still wanted to fly, uh, wanted to go, you know, want to be a naval aviator. Can I ask when when that was, just for, for those for those who are listening as opposed to uh, watching some of this? Yeah, so this would have been 1989. 89, okay. Uh, so 89. Right, right uh, around the Desert Storm time frame. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so I joined ROTC. I was a, a naval midshipman in the ROTC unit. And uh, uh, I started to notice there was a group of individuals who were always a little bit off to the side. Uh, anywhere we went, they got there a little bit early. They seemed to, it seemed to me their uniforms were a little bit sharper. 
they ran a little bit faster. Everything they did seemed to sort of be in another gear. And they were part of this Navy unit, this this midshipman, you know, ROTC unit. But they were definitely doing something that was different. And they were holding themselves to a to a standard that I could tell was somehow different. And uh, I, uh, that was attractive to me. Uh, and so I started asking about, hey, what's what is that? Who, who are those guys? And, I said, and and oh, those were the you know, those were the guys who were going into the Marine Corps. They wanted to be they were uh, Marine option naval midshipmen. So before I really knew much about the Marine Corps or the Marine Corps' mission uh, or anything along those lines, I was drawn to this idea that there's different levels of intensity. Uh, and I was drawn to what those guys were doing. And, and that led me to apply for officer candidate school to be accepted, to go to Quantico and then, and then become a, um, a Marine option myself uh, and then uh, finish out going through the uh, platoon leaders course uh, in order to get my commission into the Marine Corps. I appreciate you telling that story. So when you look back at your time in the Marine Corps and your time at Berkeley and given the the context of when you were going there, do you feel as if there's a similar sentiment that exists within folks who've gone to Berkeley or maybe maybe there's even a, a smaller subset of folks who went to Berkeley and also spent some time in the military who are now in the business community where, you know, you have that sense of camaraderie or did you find that it's more so the, time, the folks that you spent time in the Marine Corps with that you've that you've been able to kind of have that shared uh, camaraderie going forward here in the business world. The camaraderie in the in the military in general right, is is fantastic. Uh, and I think it at, you know, it it crosses over the services. It crosses over the ranks. It crosses over the generations. Uh, I, I think the camaraderie amongst those who have served is fantastic. And then it distills down. Right. Uh, as you go from, you know, if you had a whole group of people and they all had served, those who served in the Navy or in the Marine Corps or in the Army or in the Air Force, they're going to have another level of camaraderie. Uh, and then within that, those who served in certain specialties, certain, uh, you know, times in their lives, whatever it might be, it's going to distill down more and more and more. So there's there's absolutely a camaraderie that 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 crosses over everything, and it you can see it. I can see it in the business world. I mean, I've I've worked with people who have been you know who are veterans. Um, some have been Marines, some have not been Marines, uh, and and there's definitely a camaraderie that that exists there. You, you know, there's a shared experience, there's a shared background. I think it only strengthens the ability to make things happen in the business world. It doesn't, it doesn't detract from it. It doesn't cause people to isolate off and go be in their own little clique or something like that. It only, it only strengthens it, but it's, it's definitely there. Yeah. That's, that leads me to the the question that I was really getting to before. And given the, the experience that you shared with the, the manufacturing world, and I want to be cognizant of time here as we go through these experiences. When I think of Berkeley or I think of that area of the world, quite frankly, it's it's Silicon Valley. There's a lot of, of tech opportunities uh, there and, and organizations that have become wildly, massively successful but also heavily commercialized in terms of, of highlighting a lot of their uh, their successes. Did you find yourself, you know, after you got out of the military and you and you decided to, you know, double down on the growth within your career, that you were attracted more towards the, the manufacturing type space as opposed to, you know, uh, some of these tech oriented opportunities that, you know, kind of seem to be centralized there in Silicon Valley now kind of matriculating to places like Austin and, and some other, you know, some other geographical areas here in the U.S.? 
it wasn't a plan, right? I mean, what the things I've done have been about seizing the most interesting opportunity at the time, not necessarily following some grand master plan. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a, you know, I'm just a cork adrift, right, in the ocean going wherever, you know, without any idea. I've got ideas about where I want to go. When I was studying to get my MBA, uh, I tried to focus on technology strategy, right? I envisioned myself going into more of the kind of companies that you're talking about. And in fact, it's one of the reasons that I, that I went to Dell coming out, of, uh, coming out of business school. But opportunities presented themselves. And I had an opportunity at Dell to learn product marketing and a little bit of uh, product management and some sales support. And then I had an opportunity, you know, a door opened up to go do something at a much smaller company, but at a much higher level and really have an impact. And that's, you know, I left Dell and I went to this smaller manufacturing company called uh, Durcon. And so, yes, I had a, I had an idea about what I wanted to do, but I didn't let that idea put blinders on me to the other opportunities that were out there. Yeah. When it comes to uh, that step back, you you said it earlier, when I say a step back in terms of si- the size of the organization, however, it was a an increase in responsibility. Given your experience working with folks uh, who run in the same circles a- as you do, you know, executives who have seasoned experiences, do you find that there's some commonalities in terms of that maybe that, that personality type leading to some mistakes that they can make or a communication style that, you know, is, is more successful than others or, or can you talk through a little bit at some of your experiences of what you see as, as maybe potential common pitfalls that you think would be helpful to avoid? Yeah, listen, the the number one common pitfall, and we talk about this all the time at Echelon Front, the number one common pitfall is ego. When anybody lets their ego get into the decision-making process, get into leading a conversation, get in the way of letting them learn, getting in the way of letting them accept that, hey, maybe someone else's ideas are better than my ideas. There's a lot of ways that it can manifest itself, but the root cause is always common. And the root cause is that is, is ego steps in and doesn't let you be able to, you know, really in an unbiased way, evaluate what's going on. You try to force your own plan. You refuse to accept that, you know, your idea might be wrong. You don't let other people take charge. The list goes on and on again about how it can go wrong. But I think that is, and I, and this, that's a, that's a big company thing. That's a small company thing. That's a CEO thing. That's a frontline supervisor thing. And that's a, that's a individual contributor or a parent at home it applies across the board. Uh, and so when we can learn to recognize that, to recognize when ego is stepping in and is leading to the things that we say or is shutting down our ability to listen, when we can keep that in check, a lot of these, as I look back across the you know the list of knucklehead mistakes that I had made, if I had been able to keep my ego, in check in more of those, a lot of those, you know, a lot of those mistakes may not have happened or may not have happened to the, to the way that they did. Well, I mean, you, you isolated, I appreciate that. Um, you had isolated earlier in the conversation about how sometimes the ego that you had at an earlier age led to a competitiveness and a drive and a development of being attracted to adventure. Was there a, a tipping point 
as to when that realization of potentially, you know, removing some of the ego or some of the emotion from it, it sounded like the, the story that you shared where emotions got involved with, uh, you know, having target fixation was very critical because it led to a potential maturation process in terms of delineating between those two, uh, maybe healthy ego or unhealthy ego, you could make that distinction. Or, or was there something else that led to that realization? Yeah, listen, what you're hitting on there, it's it's what Jocko and Leif talk about, the dichotomy, right? The dichotomy of, of leadership, but and it's the dichotomy of our of our own leadership and our own selves too. Keeping our ego in check does not mean we don't have self-confidence, right? Because self-confidence is what propels us to have, you know, to go drive, to go do challenging things, to set high expectations for ourselves and believe we can accomplish those things. That's self-confidence. Ego, right? Ego is the counterbalance to that that steps in that says, and I know how to do it right. And I know exactly how it's going to go. And everybody get out of my way. And I'm not going to listen to anyone. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to go, you know, charging off to go make it happen by myself. There's a, there's a balance between those two. There's a healthy tension between those two. I actually like the idea sort of of this tension, not balance. Balance implies that eh, it's always easy. If you can find the balance, it stays in balance. It's not balance, it's tension. And so, you know, it's not a, there's not a silver bullet. There's not a perfect way to identify where that, that medium point is between self-confidence and ego. But if it's causing you to shut down listening to other people, to accepting new ideas, to, to, to considering that you might be wrong, that's ego. If it's saying, hey, I'm going to set high goals for myself, I'm going to set high goals for my team, for my organization, and I believe we can accomplish those, that's self-confidence, right? And I think that, I think that's healthy. Yeah, those two lists, uh, that's the snippet right there. That's the, those two lists literally give you a checklist. Potentially one of them is a list of red flags. If you feel these things are taken, taken up or you're observing these things happening, uh, potentially apply this corrective action over here, which is in a clear mental space. Apply self-confidence or self-confidence practices to enable your team to, to apply that corrective action. It's, it's fascinating to split those two things up and to actually, quite frankly, just be a mirror to both of them. I've, I've screwed up so many times from an ego perspective, just you going through the list, I'm flinching going, oh my gosh, yeah, I've, I took an incorrect tone with my with my, my wife or my kids, or maybe I've used my nonverbals to try to get a point across when in fact that's an immature way to communicate when I'm trying to accomplish something within a, the context of uh, you know a sales call or the business environment. So uh, plenty of examples where folks sometimes stop is is not having safeguards in either scenario. It seems as if you can kind of get stuck, you know, if you continue to make the same mistakes again, if you don't go out and find uh, a right partner or a right mentor. And maybe that's a good place to land uh, the plane here, Cordell. Let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you found folks who've been heavily influential, and you know what you what you what you feel like maybe is happening next, or or what could be on the horizon for you as a result of some of those relationships that you've been building. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've been really fortunate uh, to find myself in environments, whether it was Berkeley, the Marine Corps, uh, Dell, you know, the companies that I've been at working with the team at Echelon Front. Those are high performing organizations. Those are people who want to learn, who want to excel. And I've been fortunate to be able to find myself in those environments and, and really in every one of those to meet people to learn from. Uh, I had somebody one time, a guy in operations at Dell, his name was Todd. 
And Todd said to me, uh, Todd was a, a big guy from Tennessee. And he said to me, he said, you're either really, really smart or really, really stupid because all you ever seem to do is ask questions and get yourself surrounded by really smart, hardworking, committed people and learn, ask questions, ask questions, learn, absorb everything, absorb everything that you can from them. Don't think that you got to prove to them what you know, right? The really valuable thing is for you to learn from them what they know, right? That leads to our own growth. So I've been fortunate to be in in those kinds of environments. As far as what I'm, you know, what comes next, uh, we were really uh, fortunate. The last company I was running uh, out in Colorado, a company called Capco, really impressive prime contractor uh, to the Department of Defense. Uh, That business was uh, acquired uh, over the summer. And uh, it was time for me to hand the leadership reins over to somebody else, which uh, is actually, that's a real joy to be able to do. It's a real pleasure to be able to let someone else take that role uh, and to, to know that, hey, it's time for them to put their fingerprint on this organization and set the strategy and st- set the vision. That's actually a really rewarding uh, thing to be able to do in your own career. Uh, but handed that off to a, a member of my team uh, and um you know, now I'm in another one of those exploration periods. Uh, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a vision, right? I, I, I think I know where I would like it to head. But if history is any teacher to me, uh, and I look back at the times in my life where I've had these moments of, you know, transition, it's probably not going to unfold the way that I think it's going to unfold. Some interesting opportunity is going to come at me you know, from the from the right flank and that I'm not expecting him to say that that looks really challenging. That looks really fun. I don't know where it leads, but I'm going to go try that out. That's awesome to have that that attitude. I mean, congratulations to you, by the way, you and, and your team and a credit to obviously, obviously the decisions. Uh, being able to apply what it is that you've learned to be able to have something to pass off to uh, a member of your team. That's incredible. So congratulations to you. And also f- for the folks over there at Echelon Front that you're running with, are you going to be going to musters going forward? Or is that something that, you know, if, if those of you who are listening, who, you know, connected with something that you had to say, would they be able to see you run around in circles over there? Or are you going to those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no matter what, uh, no matter what next steps I take, uh, staying engaged with Echelon Front, continuing to do uh, the work that I that I've been able to do with them. I will be at Musters and that team just has such an amazing impact. Uh, and the work that they get to do is is rewarding. The work that I get to do, uh, the folks that I get to talk with, see them, uh, you know, wrestle with and overcome their own challenges, improve their own leadership. That is so rewarding. Uh, I, I will absolutely be, you know, connected, uh, stay connected and be working with them going forward. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Cordell, I appreciate you taking the time today. Covered a lot of opportunities to screw up. I think the way that you described it was there was opportunities that you had put yourself in from the adventurous spirit that led to an opportunity to create knucklehead moments. I appreciate your candor and your willingness to share some of those uh, with your audience. And, and I'm sure that there's plenty more that we didn't even get a chance to go to. My encouragement to those of you who are listening would be reach out, touch base with them. He just told you a couple different ways you could cross paths with them uh, potentially going forward. If you're in the military, you happen to be a pilot, similar set of circumstances what Cordell talked about. My encouragement to you is to 
to reach out and touch base. What is the best way for folks to get in touch with the Cordell? Yeah, sure. Listen, like probably everybody these days, you know, I've got a whole bunch of email addresses, but the uh, easiest one to, to reach me at is just my first name, last name, Cordell Benningson at gmail.com. There you go. All right. Well, the price of admission is get in touch either with Knucklehead or with Cordell himself. Echelon Front is a great way that you get to uh, see him, press the flesh, say, hey, uh, develop a, uh, a friendship, a relationship. Cordell, anything else that you want to leave these folks with before we jam? No, Stephen, I appreciate it. Hey, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for those of you who like listening to Knucklehead, new episodes coming at you every Tuesday. Cordell, we appreciate you taking the time. So with that, remember, don't be a bait about the process. You're going to get smacked around just a bit. It's going to help you learn the lessons that you need to to get to where it is that you want to go. You do that iteratively by getting some wins is what we call about. That'll develop the inertia and the momentum that you're looking for. And uh, we appreciate you, Cordell, taking the time. So with that, we'll see you guys. Have a good rest of the day. Take care.